Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Zhenshu Chen. Zhenshu is a scientist in the assay development group at the Allen Institute for Cell Science. Zhenshu, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Hi, Sam. Hey, it's great to uh, great to speak to you and meet you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. To get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work at the intersection of machine learning and biology? Okay. I got my PhD in computer science in 2017 from University of Notre Dame. And during my PhD, I mainly conducted research in uh, machine learning and image analysis and, and more importantly, and their applications in biology. So before I came to Notre Dame, uh, I have no clue what I'm going to do in the, in the future. And later, I just uh, all of a sudden, like we're randomly came into a, a very fascinating problem in biology and trying to use computer science algorithm to solve it. And that is the moment I say, okay, oh my God, this is so fun and 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 very impactful. So I that's the the, the place that or that's the moment where I decide, okay, this is a this is the my career. And then uh, after I graduate uh, in 2017, I came to Allen Institute for Cell Science where we have very heavy, like multi-team doing team science, where we have lots of biologists, uh, computer scientists, computational biologists, and software engineer, and everyone work together to solve very big, fundamental cell biology problems. And machine learning is playing a critical role that attracts me here. When you first got started. Were you more coming from a, a biology perspective or more from a computer science perspective? Uh, I would say I, I came from more computer science perspective. And uh, I always use a very uh, interesting example. I, I would say, like before 2017, I know nothing about mitochondria. I don't even know that particular English word. And I don't even know what does it mean. So, so, so that, that, that's really funny. I, but right now, I'm doing lots of uh, segmentation, analysis, interpretation on mitochondria. So that, that's really uh, something really funny to me, actually. You know, how did you, how did you approach that? You know, a lot of uh, folks that are doing machine learning, you know, don't have deep experience in a domain and, you know, have to get up to speed in uh, the domain and the domain that you are getting up to speed in is one that is particularly complex, which has its own, you know, many open questions uh, around the, the biology. How did you approach, you know, coming up to speed in it? Yes, that is a fantastic question. So actually, I will probably cover more. Uh, I, actually, I cover a lot in that, that particular question in my GTC talk. So the basic idea is that uh, in computer science, we try to make design an abstract problem. Say, say we, we have a very practical problem, like in a biology, in medical domain, or in whatever. The problem in our real life is more complicated. But computer scientists sometimes may want to start with a simplified version or abstract version. Mm -hmm. And starting from there, 
we develop methods, we develop all the kind of uh, deep learning models and artificial intelligence techniques put in, in there. But later, I realized that how much we want to do this simplification or abstract, uh, abstract is actually uh, a key when we want to put uh, artificial intelligence into biology. So sometimes the problem is oversimplified. That's the problem. That is the place I find myself really struggling with and having lots of, I was struggling a lot when I do the transition from a computer scientist to like half and half. So the strategy I took to do this transition is going back and forth between the knowledge, the, the biologists and come back to my a problem and come back for many times. When I show my result to biologists, I try to understand how they see my result. And sometimes, mm. or most of the time, they see the result or they see the image or they see the figures, the, the numbers, completely different from what I saw it. So they mm -hmm. are viewing it from a very different aspect. And by analyzing or by learning all such discrepancy between how I view the problem and how they view the problem. That's the strategy I took to transition myself from computer scientist to a like half computer scientist, half biologist. That's awesome. Does any particular example of that kind of interaction come to mind where, you know, you presented some results and they really saw them very differently from how you did and you had to kind of close that gap? Yes, absolutely. There are tons of cool examples there. A very simple example is when we, we know lots of like uh, segmentation. Say the basic idea of segmentation is the computer reads in an image. We want to find or we want to outline the structure in this image. And then we can quantify the size of it or how long it is, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the problem is pretty straightforward. So for computer scientists, I will just say, hmm, I will do a, a like this and that method and extract object. I will, how good is, uh, is my output or how good is my algorithm? I will do that visually mm -hmm. uh, by a visual assessment or some kind of comparison between my results and what I see in the image. So this is my understanding as a computer scientist. But when I go to the biologist, they are seeing that in a different way. So a key message is what you see in the image may not be the truth. You mm. have to take the microscope effect into account. When you shoot a light to light up a small ball under the microscope, uh, we are talking about spinning this uh, confocal microscope where uh, some particular cellular structure is labeled by some kind of fluorescent protein and then it will be light up under the microscope and by the laser power but what you see in the image is actually you have to take into account the blurry effect of the microscope because all the because of all those optical details that i have no idea to understand at the beginning so you see a ball with for, for example like uh like 10 pixel wide, the actual object may be only five pixel wide, something like that. What you see is not the truth. That's what drives me crazy, right? Mm. So I have to understand what the optical details of that particular microscope and all those fundamental biology say, for example, the things cannot be like having two branches. It has to be a single, single filament, things like that. We, I have to combine my computer knowledge in computer science, also my 
the, the, the new things I'm learning about optics and also the, the new things I'm learning about the biology, I, I glue these three pieces together and reach a new, more accurate uh, solution. That's great. And I think that example is one that you're going to come back to. When I look through your slides from GTC, a lot of the work that you're doing in the uh, the Cell Explorer Toolkit, which we'll be talking about, look like trying to kind of close this gap computationally between what you might see in one image and what's really you know there, but you, you're not seeing it due to some of these artifacts and effects that you're describing. Exactly. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Great. So maybe let's um, then use that as an opportunity to, to transition and, and talk a little bit about the uh, Cell Explorer Toolkit and, you know, what is it really trying to do? Uh, yeah, sure. So at uh, Allen Institute of Cell Science, we are trying to build this concept called Allen Cell Explorer Toolkit, which uh, is a combination of cell creator, cell image generator, cell image analyzer, cell image visualizer, and cell image simulator. And in my GTC talk, I focus mostly on three parts, the generator, analyzer, and visualizer, where the computation or the GPU computing is heavily used there. So the, gener the generator, if I want to describe it with one sentence, is like how we get uh, an image to be analyzed. So apparently, we need to get image from microscope. But with the help of uh, GPU computing, we can generate more image from one single experiment. So that's the key idea of generator. The analyzer is, uh, as the name indicates, is just given this image, how we analyze them. And finally, realization is a big part of cell biology. So. Uh, and also for uh, GPU computing is certainly a big, uh, a play a critical role in the like modern visualization tools. Mm -hmm. and, and taking a step back, what's the the goal for the Cell Explorer Toolkit? Is this an internal tool that's used at the Allen Center or is it designed to be used by uh, external folks, and who are the main users? Uh, presumably biologists, or is it something uh, something different? Yeah, great. That, that's, that's a perfect question. So actually, at Allen Institute for Cell Science, we are doing open science, and we want to make the tool that we develop here to be usable for everyone outside this institute. And the reason we believe our tool will be useful is that we are doing academic research at the industrial scale. By doing research at this level or at this scale, we may realize something. We hope to build some tools that will be more general or more stable or more user-friendly for a broader audience so that uh, everyone uh, can use it. So, so that's the, the basic idea of why we want to build this toolkit. And so you, you mentioned that you focused on these three areas, starting with the cell image generator. Tell us a little bit more about that and where machine learning comes into play. Okay, cell image generator. Of course, uh, again, as, as I just mentioned, we need um, the microscope to get some image. However, um, with the help of uh, GPU computing, 
we can break some limit where the traditional microscope has. For example, uh, in my talk, I showed a, uh, a, an example where I took the image at a very low resolution, which, which can help me get overview of the whole colony, which is like maybe 500 of cells in the same image. But each of them has like relatively like not that detailed because of the resolution. Mm -hmm. However, if we change some settings in the microscope, we switch to a different objective or using a different modality, we, the same colony, we can get it in a very, very high resolution. Say, for example, but, but in, we may sacrifice something because, for example, we can only see maybe 10 cells in that particular image, but each cell has lots of details, which, which contains lots of meaningful biological information in there. Mm -hmm. But there's a trade-off. So you cannot get, a, get both things at the same time. So you, you, are, you, you want either get more cells but less details or get less cells but more details, right? There's always a trade-off. So mm -hmm. we are thinking that whether a computational model can help. So that's what motivates us to design this, what we call the transfer function. The basic idea is we build a deep learning model uh, trained on some low-res image and high-res image pair. So whenever in the real image acquisition, we got like a sequence of low quality or low-res image, and which give us like 500, cell, 500 cells in each time step. Mm -hmm. And even though there's not that much detail, but we, after applying this tr fully trained transfer function model on this low resolution images, we can like make it up and we can improve the quality or improve the resolution of each image so that every single cell, we, we can put back all the details into the, of each cell into that low-res image. In other words, we are seeing high resolution of each, each cell at a very large colony, or it's a combination of larger field of view, or maybe see, seeing more cells in the image and also seeing more details in the image. Uh, so traditionally, yeah, in the microscope, we cannot do that. But combining that with a computational model, we can achieve that to a very, very high accuracy. I'm envisioning something along the lines of uh, applying style transfer or DLDify, kind of one of these image coloring techniques, to the the low-resolution images based on the data from the high-resolution portion of those images. Yes. So the underlying techniques is pretty much the same as style transfer was the like uh, common models people used in deep learning and computer science for style transfer for super resolution things like that. But later, mm -hmm. at the beginning, I thought, like, yeah, I have the sa exact same feeling. I think if people can do that on natural scene image, I think it's just a piece of cake and just put it on the microscope image. There's no not big deal. But later. Uh, after doing more and more validation, uh, I realized one important piece. In the natural scene image, say you are uh, trying to supervise your image of a cat, right? So in your output, the supervised image, if the cat, the, the eyes of the cat 
looks a little bit larger or smaller, it doesn't really matter. Maybe one pixel larger or two pixels smaller, you may not even notice that, right? That they're, they're, always, they're, still, they're still a cat. But for sale, that's different. That will be a very totally different story. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, a lot of, you know, when I think about those kind of techniques, I think of generative models that, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways are just making stuff up. But if you're trying to use these images for scientific purposes, you actually want them to reflect the reality of what's happening happening in that cell population, not just, you know, a visual high resolution thing that looks nice. Yes, so that give us two things. First of all, it give us some direction about how we can improve our model on top of existing style transfer models. On the other mm -hmm. hand, it give us uh, it it give us some hint on how we should validate our result and how much we should trust our generated image. Mm. So why don't you go into those two in more detail? Yes, for sure. So for the first part, so after seeing this particular thing about uh, whether the prediction is to be larger or smaller and whether how much it affects, it drives us going back to the model. See, what can we do to for the, in the, on the model to make this prediction uh, more accurate? Or what's, what's wrong with the model? So then we realized that in our training data or the way we collect the pair of low-res image and high-res image, it's very, very hard to get a fully aligned low-res and high-res pair. Think about uh, how we capture the image in, in, the, in, the, in the real life. Say in microscope, when we capture a 3D image, you can think of like uh, if you have a piece of meat, you want to slice it, right? So in the low-res image, the same piece of meat, you may slice it like at three different positions. But in a high-res image, you may slice that piece of meat like by, at 10 different positions, much denser, much smaller gap between each step. Mm -hmm. So in that case, uh, and also the position you do the slicing or you take the slice uh, uh, may not be, um, they may not at the same place. So, so anyway, anyhow, the low-res image and high-res image they may misalign in Z. That is a fundamental issue. Right. So you can't necessarily, you know, directly match your uh, your target image or label image in the high res space to uh, the low res space because they're misaligned uh, in yeah. terms of these slices. Correct. So we are trying two different ways. First of all, well, we uh, we modify the model. Uh, which we embedded uh, a spatial transformer network into the model to, to learn such misalignment and try to correct it. That's the one thing we tried. The other thing we tried is uh, we tried to develop a registration algorithm which can make this uh, alignment to its best. Maybe they are not perfect, but as much as we can. Using any using a traditional uh, image registration algorithm to to the line image, and we tried both, and each has pros and cons. But uh, but the good news is both methods are improving the the quality of the prediction by a lot. I'm I'm not sure if the the image that I'm thinking of is one that corresponds to this point you're making, but. You know, there's an 
initial reaction I had to that, that, you know, you've got these, these additional slices and you're not able to align your slices. And so, you know, the approach is maybe one of interpolation, but there's this one image in there where that's showing that, you know, actually these different slices have totally different things in them. And so you can't Mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, statistical interpolation of some sort probably isn't going to work very well. So, so in terms of the slice, so I, I'm not sure whether I I explain that uh, clearly, but if I'm I will try to put it in a in a, diff, in a in a different way. So, if you think about the the low res image, have three different slices uh, on the mm-hmm. same piece of meat. On the high res image, you have ten different slices on the same piece of meat. So the first step, it will we need to upsample or do some interpolation on low res image so that it will have uh, 10 slices. So now on both images, we have 10 slices, right? Mm-hmm. So now the, the number of slices match, but okay. uh, but but uh, the first slice in the upsampled or the interpolated version, the first slice of, of that may correspond to the second slice of the true like, like high res slice. And that's right? where you're doing your registration. Yes, that's what we are doing. Either we want to shift them a little bit and at the beginning, or uh, we can also we, we also develop a model that can handle that uh, inside the model. Okay. I think the image that I was thinking of um, is referring to something else. It was talking about predicted channels, and it has like each of the channels has very different things on it. And I was interpreting that as slices, but that's probably something different. Oh, by slice, I mean uh, the slice along Z, uh, Z direction. Yeah. So you're doing the registration, which allows you to then use your upsampled image as a label. Is that essentially right? So use my upsampled image as the input. Use as my the input. True, yeah, use the true right, right, right. high-res image as my target. Cool. So that was the first part, correct? And then the second piece is what uh the second part of the actually there's a second part of the image generator which we call the label free method so the 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 the, what we have been talking about is from low res to high res but there's another type of generation um so think about uh now we come to multi-channel is (laughs) what you are picturing uh, a moment ago so yeah so usually when we do um when we collect cell images, we will have multiple channels. Say we should light at different, the light spectrum, we have different type of light. And then we can have uh, different channels as they have different dye in there. Mm-hmm. So usually we will have an image with uh, some dye to light up the nucleus and some, dye, some, some kind of protein to light up the one of the intercellular structure and another type of dye to light up the cell boundary. And, and there's another type, another special channel, which is from the transmitted light, which give us the what we call the bright field image. The bright field image is uh, different from what we talk about in the other three, which requires some, require some fluorescent tagging, some fluorescent imaging. So the, the bright field image is just transmitted light. You just shoot the light there, you see the image without any harmful or uh, photo, any like dye that may damage your cell. So the, the light will not, will not damage your cell. So in that, in that sense, um, 
uh, th this is a general description of what we have uh, in general. So I mentioned that there's a specific channel tagging only one intercellular structures because mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, a special cell line which we did lots of whole bunch of gene editing so that that particular cell can have that property where that particular structure can be light up with like the, the type of experiment. Each experiment can only light up uh, one inter intercellular structures. And sometimes we, with very, very special gene editing techniques, we may light up two or at most three. Going beyond three will be super, super hard. So basically, we can see three structures at a time, at most, in the real experiment. However, we always have the bright field as a reference. The bright field image, I mean, the, the image we collect by shooting the transmitted light. So that is something harmless and can be cheaply acquired. Uh, so what we are thinking is whether we can predict the special intercellular structure from the bright field image, right? So if we can do that by given, given any single bright field image, we can predict 20 different structures at the same time for the same cell. And in a non-destructive way. Yes, that is the most important part, or it's a brand new way of designing your assay, your, your experimental assay. So mm -hmm. before, we can only tag one structure at a time. And you, you can now say, you can now see how these 20 structures live together in the same cell. You will never see that because every time you can only see one structure or two, right? So now with this particular technique, with any single bright field image, we can predict a lot of different structures of the, for the same cell. That is a fundamental improvement in imaging or how we generate images. So that mm -hmm. will allow us to study the cell as a whole, as like with all the different parts playing together, not individually. And so in, in both of these cases, kind of going back to the earlier comments around the kind of the generative nature of some of these techniques, how do you, how do you measure performance and uh, compare, you know, these cells that you're generating to uh, actual cells in a way that, um, you know, ensures that they are high fidelity to what's actually there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, the strategy we are taking is application-specific validation. Say you are, you are carrying, a, if you are, for example, when we talk about the label-free prediction, say we are predicting uh, 10 different structures from the same graphical image and how good they are. How much can we trust them? And, and if we are talking about some application we, where we require the absolute accuracy, say whether pixel-wise accuracy is exactly the same matching the truth, then probably in the 10 structure, nine of them is not that trustable in that sense because the pixel-wise accuracy is, may not be that high uh, for some structures. So maybe one structure will have very high pixel-wise accuracy. But in other applications where we care about how different parts correlated it to each other, like in the space, we don't actually need that much 
pixel-wise accuracy. What we care more about is whether they are predicting the overall position of that particular structure in the correct place. So in, okay. uh, with that in, in place, we can study how different structures functioning uh, together or whether there's any correlation with the structures. So anyway, that is what we, the, the strategy we call, like we care more is like whether this result is suitable for that applications. So this is our strategy. So kind of taking an application-by-application approach to evaluating performance, some of which are concerned about absolute characteristics like size and others are more concerned with relative uh, characteristics like position. Exactly. That is the image generator component. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one you mentioned is the cell image analyzer. Uh, What is that piece trying to do and where... Um, you know, how have you used ML in, in that component? Yeah, uh, for image analyzer, in lots of cases, when we've got an uh, image where we want to analyze it, the very first step is to do a segmentation. We just like binarize the image, uh, generate a binary mask, indicate where are the structures, where are the intercellular, intercellular structures. So that's mm-hmm. the very first step we call it segmentation. So doing segmentation in microscopy image or microscopy image of cells, it's actually different from what we are doing, like the semantic segmentation or instance segmentation or all sorts of segmentation in uh, computer vision um, in natural scene image. That could be very different. So that difference comes from a couple of different sources. Let's start with a very simple example. Lots of people may know that uh, in, for deep learning, people can just manually draw the boundary of that object. So it may, no matter it's a people or cat or dog, we just manually draw the boundary of that. And we draw that boundary for, say, 500 images or 5,000 images. Mm-hmm. And that may not be that hard. It maybe takes some time, but it's not that hard. That's possible, right? Yeah. After have this 5,000 image or even more, we just throw it into a UNet or some kind of ResNet or some deep neural network. And it will predict the mask for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what uh, like a lot of um, existing work are doing. But in, in microscopy images, especially for uh, cellular structures, if you think about how complicated the topology or morphology of the structure could be, then you immediately appreciate that this is not possible to to do this kind of manual annotation. So if you think about... uh, I I think when you think about, you know, bounding boxes and how tightly packed these cells uh, are in some cases, you know, it's clear that that won't work, but then you have pixel pixel masks that are manually applied and other techniques that could conceivably be used? Uh, for the pixel mask, even that, that could be hard if you think about in 3D. Uh, by the way, I, mm. I, I forgot to mention that everything, what we, are, what we are doing is in 3D. Okay. So, yeah, if you are thinking about uh, a ball in 3D and, and you, if you ask me to draw the mask pixel-wise, uh, for that particular ball in 3D, oh, I think I can do a good, pretty good job. But if you give me uh, a tree, 
or a more complicated structure where different parts interacting with, with different other parts, uh, something like that. Or a ball of yarn. You think about how, how they tangle up, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. I, want, I want you to uh, draw the outline of each single piece of yarn goes through the ball. Yeah, it gets a lot harder in 3D. Yeah, for it's sure. not possible. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the strategy we are approaching that is what we call, uh, uh, which, which we implemented in what we call the segmenter, is we use some classic method. There are like more than 20 years of study of classic image processing techniques. They are still very useful, and they can give us a very, very good result to start. So, so we, did, we make a collection of a classic algorithm to give us some quick start. So based on that, for example, if you think about the, the ball of yarn, we design some uh, classic algorithm can give us a rough segmentation of each piece of yarn. Uh, mostly, like, like not very accurate, but give us a lot of good segmentation here and there. So uh, instead of manually draw where each piece of yarn is, we, we use a different way to do the annotation. We draw a bounding box, say here, this area, what the classic algorithm is doing, is good. Let's confirm that. And then for that particular area, what the classic algorithm is doing is bad. So throw that away. So by doing this kind of curation, we say here are good, here are bad, here are good, and there are bad. We may have a small piece, a small amount of good segmentation and use that as our initial training data for our uh, to train our deep learning model. And then mm-hmm. you have this model one. You apply it on your data. And then the, mo- the result will be better. Now let's do again. Here is doing a good job. Here is doing a not that good. Throw it away. Here we are doing a good job. And there we are doing a good job. Okay, now we have our second round of iteration. We collect a larger set of good segmentation. Then we use that to train our second model. Now we keep this iteration going, um, going like iteration by iteration. So every iteration, your model is improving a little bit, more or less. So we we hope to to improve our model throughout this like different iterations, and at the end, finally, we will achieve a model that we can never achieve by uh, collecting uh, manual annotation. What I'm hearing is that uh, I, I know it's not quite the same, but it's making me think a little bit of like an active learning type of a scenario where exactly, you've got, yes. um, you're, you're trying to feed back to the system, the training data that has struggled with the most. And in this case, you're using uh, human annotators, but not to identify the actual features in your image, but rather to identify where the you know where your segmentation algorithm you know didn't do a good job. Correct. So that is a big part of the, the segmenter. There's another complementary part where you think about if you have two types of cells uh, in, in your image, say mitotic cell and interface cell, they are in different cell cell cycle and and they may show up as different morphology. So one single classic method will not be able to uh, do a good job there, right? So we have, then we can use two. 
we use two methods. Each will give us a different segmentation version. Now we have the same image. We have segmentation version one. We have segmentation version two. Each version has its own advantage and disadvantage. Okay, now we just use our human annotator as the follows. Say we circle out in cell one, in this cell, we make a circle. Okay, in this cell, we use segmentation version one. In that cell, we circle out, we use segmentation version two. In that cell, we use segmentation version one. In that cell, we use segmentation version two. So we, by doing this kind of circling, we are creating a merged ground truth that can help us train the model. At the end, the model is able to segment both type of cells correctly. You know, very single model or multiple models. Uh, single model to deal with two okay. different type of cells. And so this is again resting on the um, segmenter. The part segmenter, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah, part of the image analyzer. So a little bit like one minute or two minutes uh, down the segmenter direction is. Sometimes is uh, we we may think of segment segmentation is uh, most of the an analysis is about segmentation. Sometimes uh, it's not. Sometimes we can do something on the original image. So that's another part of the analyzer. This this is what we call uh, the integrated cell, where we build a autoencoder on the original image, where we try to learn the underlining correlation between uh, each part of the cells and how they function as a whole. And that's another part of the uh, analyzer. You, you mentioned the, the autoencoder part. Um, yes. Elaborate on what exactly that's doing. Okay, sure. So uh, I showed an example in, the, in my slides where, say, I see cell boundaries like this. I see DNA patterns like this. And, they, and then can we use these two pieces of information, just purely taking an image, to predict where the mitochondria should live? So there, must be a, 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 there, there might be a correlation between the position of, your, of the mitochondria conditioned on the shape, and shape of the cell and the DNA. So this mm -hmm. is how the... Uh, autoencoder is trying to learn. So basically, I take this, I'm trying to reconstruct it, and if I'm able to reconstruct it, and there I learn, throughout this process, I learn some correlation um, between the mitochondria and the shape of the cell and the, the position of the DNA, things like that. So by doing this, uh, we are trying to model the relationship between the different structures. I'm not sure if I make it clear, but once you've you've done that and you've got this hidden representation in your autoencoder, how are you using that? Yeah, that is actually uh, will give us lots of that. That's something we want to try to make some biological interpretation. Say, uh, what are the correlation and how should we interpret from a biological uh, perspective? So we that that's something we are doing right now to give it. Uh, a biological interpolation. Got it. Got it. So that part is ongoing. Yes. Okay. Cool. And then, uh, just quickly, the the third part of the toolkit that you mentioned is the visualizer. 
how do folks use the visualizer? Is that um, you know just kind of a GUI that you know sits on some data structures and allows you to look at these images that you've generated, or um, what all is going on in there? Yes. So we build this. Uh, I, I mean, at our institute, we build this uh, software called Agave, and that uses the GPU technology to do the photorealistic lightening and shading on our 3D microscopy and data. So uh, the reason we, we care about uh, making the realization more realistic and also including something like depth of the image and things like that to make it looking amazing. It's not more than looking amazing. Actually, by looking this amazing image, it gives us some feedback from biological cons- uh, perspective. So when you look at a particular colony, the traditional rendering method will give you a kind of messy uh, visualization in 3D, especially in 3D, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you don't have a f- good first impression about the, the biological property of the colony. But with proper shading and lightening and all these the, the retracing re- re- techniques that we are using, we make the image looking very clean and very easy to digest so that biologists have a better understanding what's going on inside the cell and inside this whole colony. And we will include a link to the uh, your slides from GTC uh, on the show notes page. And I encourage folks to check it out um, uh, for this part in particular, if only because the image of the, you've got one mode in Agave that's called cinema, cinematographic path tracing, and the images do look spectacular. Yes, I, I, uh, this is uh, from our animated cell team. So I, I, I love their image. They're, they're very beautiful. Cool. And is there a, a ML component to this work as well, or is it just kind of raw number crunching using the, the GPU? Uh, so far, there's no ML yet, but we are okay. thinking about uh, further integration. Well, very interesting stuff. Uh, Jianxu, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to you know, chat with us about what you're working on. Very cool. Of course. Any uh, parting thoughts or, you know, words for folks that might be interested in exploring this area further? I, I would say we find that um, the, all this, like, machine learning stuff and the GPU computing solutions sounds like it's, it's much more than faster computation. It's much more than uh, better visualization. It's actually making us thinking about or doing cell biology research in a completely new way. And we are also, we are exploring different possibilities down this road. And that's something we are doing now and keep pushing forward. Uh, into different directions. Uh, Well, once again, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.